we can have that passage uh, open in front of you back in Hebrews chapter 7. Do you need a priest? Perhaps it's uh, not a question you get asked very often, uh, certainly not in certain circles. And in other circles, it's normally what happens when you're about on death's door, isn't it? It's, oh, do you need a, a priest to come? But it's a serious question. Do you need a priest? Now, since the Reformation that we've been celebrating over the past few weeks, uh, the Reformation in the 1600s, the answer among most Christians on the Protestant side has been a resounding no. No, we don't need a priest to stand before God for us. No, we don't need uh, a priest to do sacrifices. No, we don't need a priest to pray for us. And of course we don't. Except that we kind of do, don't we? Don't hear me wrong, the Reformation was absolutely right. We don't need guys in frocks uh, prancing around calling themselves father. But we do need a priest. We do need someone to stand uh, before God for us. Because as sinners, we can't do that. We've upset God. We've rebelled against God. We really do need someone to make a sacrifice for us. Because we can't offer a sacrifice that is worth enough to make us stand before God. We really do need somebody to pray for us. Because we can't stand in our own strength. But what really matters is who. Who we have as our priest. Now we can have a guy in a funny hat, or we can have the guy that Hebrews describes to us. Who is that guy? Well, the first point we see is that he is the ceaseless, stainless, self-sacrificial son. I won't say that again, you can see it up on the screen. But let me read to you verses uh, 23 to 25 again. The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The point of this first little bit here is that Christ is ceaseless. Priests die. That's basically the point of that first little section. Uh, it's, a, it's a nice way of putting it, is that they were prevented from continuing in office by a uh, matter of their death. It's sort of like, you know, death tends to kind of get in the way of your career, uh, doesn't it, as a high priest. That's what it's really saying. But what it meant in practice was that there was no continuity. So you'd have one priest, and then another priest, and then another priest. Apparently there were about 83 priests uh, through Israel's history. And just one after the other after the other. And you could have a good great high priest, if that's not a contradiction in terms of good great high priests. But even if they were an amazing high priest, there would come the point when they would die. And as we've been seeing in our life groups in 1 Samuel, when someone else takes over, that can be a big problem. Things can change quite dramatically. So the priesthood could be in a good way, but you have no idea what's coming next. So what Israel really needed was a great great high priest who doesn't die will enter Jesus onto the scene. He holds the office of high priest permanently. Now the word there, amazingly Steve, I am going to redeem your, uh, your dropping of the thing because it, the word there literally means unbreakably. 
Okay? So it's not like our Lego uh, thing here where, you know, it could break and then you have to fix it. He holds the priesthood unbreakably. So it's not just that he's accidentally just so happened not happened to have died yet. It's the idea of it being unbreakable. Because we've all had things that were supposedly permanent, haven't we? Jobs with a permanent contract. Marriages that were supposed to go on. Glue. You always get the thing, oh, this glue is permanent glue. But it never is, is it? It breaks eventually. Those things break, they've ended. But Jesus' priesthood is even better. It's unbreakable. It's a bit like Thailand is a country that's never been invaded. But that's sort of just a quirk of history, isn't it? It's just not been invaded yet. It still could be. There's nothing special about that country that means it couldn't be. But Jesus' priesthood, it's not just that it's gone on forever. It's that it's unbreakable. It cannot end. And that means that Jesus is alive always to intercede for us. There's never going to be a change of regime, if you like. The priest that we have now in our Lord Jesus will never change. It's unbreakable. So there will be no next high priest to worry about. You know, well, what's, what's the next guy going to be like? There's never going to be a lame, he's never going to be a lame duck high priest where we're sort of going, well, we've got Jesus, but we're really waiting for the next guy. He's the great and final high priest of this world. And that should give us great confidence. Because if we're right with him, then we're right forever. It's a bit like in, in work, you know, you, you, you spend your time getting into relationships with people in your office or your, your workplace, don't you? And you, you sort of, you can be in a friendly relationship with your boss and things seem to be going okay. It's okay until the boss changes. And then suddenly, oh, everything could go wrong, couldn't it? And you spend all that time and effort getting right with that person, if you like. Well, Jesus has put us right with him, and he's staying. There's going to be no change in boss, no change in priest. So if we're right with Jesus, then we're right forever. But what does it mean that he lives forever to intercede for us? That's a bit of a word we don't use very often. Intercede, it's sort of the idea of praying, isn't it? But it's also the role of an advocate, of a a lawyer, if you like, who stands before God pleading our case. On the back of your notice sheet, you'll see there there's Romans 8, verse 34, which picks upon this same idea. The author Paul is, is writing rhetorical questions to help us think about our security in Christ. And he says this, Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. He's saying, who could condemn us? Who would have the right to say, well, I've never made any mistakes? Because they're the sort of people who can condemn you, aren't they? If they've made mistakes, well, they're in the same boat. Who is there to condemn us? Well, Jesus Christ could. But Jesus Christ is the one who's died for us. And Jesus Christ is the one who's now stood with God in heaven, pleading for us. If he's the one that could condemn us, and he's the one that's our lawyer, if you like, he's the one making the case for us, how secure are we? He's on our side. And it's the same idea in uh, um, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Again, you'll find that on the back of your notice sheet. My little children, I am writing these things to you 
so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So he's saying, yeah, don't sin. I'm writing this to you so you don't sin. But if you do, well, Jesus is stood there before the Father. He's pleading for us. He's praying for us. So we have an advocate with the Father. We have somebody who's there on our behalf, making the case for us, if you like, in front of God. Now, this isn't a separate work from his sacrifice, okay? Just to explain, because we talked about Jesus' finished work, didn't we? Well, what is it that Jesus pleads before the Father? Well, he pleads this when we sin. Well, that one's mine. I bought him with my blood. So we can't condemn him. Look at my sufferings. Look at my nail-pierced hands. That means that we don't condemn him. That means that he's still right with you. So Jesus' prayers and pleas before God are for us to keep going, if you like. So that we don't lose the position that we are in. He's praying that all the obstacles that could get in the way of us making it to the end, of us making it to glory, wouldn't stop us doing that. He's praying about our sin that could stop us. But Jesus is saying, well, no, look, I've paid for it. He's praying against the devil making a difference. He's praying for us to survive the allurements of this world and keep going to the end. And if Jesus is praying for us before the Father, then it's going to happen, isn't it? Someone put it, what he prayed for Simon Peter on earth, he prays for us in heaven. What does he pray for Simon Peter? We'll have a look again on the back of your notice sheets. Luke 22, 31 to 32. This is what he prayed while he was on earth. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What did he pray for Peter? Even when he was on earth, he prayed that his faith would not fail. And if Jesus prays for it, it's going to happen. Or in this case, it's not going to happen. His faith isn't going to fail. And what Jesus prays for Simon Peter on earth, that's basically what he's praying for us in heaven. That our faith may not fail. That we keep going. So Jesus ever lives to stand before the Father for us. When Satan approaches the throne to condemn us, well, he can see Jesus standing there. It's almost as though it's a sign. Don't bother accusing Christians before the judge. Their advocate is there. The Father listens to him. So we have this situation that the judge is on our side. Our lawyer is the greatest this world has ever known. Don't even bother bringing charges because they will fail. Now, the devil tries to convince us that that's not true, that we're not safe. But Jesus is our high priest. He is the one that stood there. No ifs, no buts. Our high priest stands before the Father in heaven, interceding for us, holding out his nail-pierced hands to the Father, pleading our case ceaselessly. And he will not stop until his enemies and ours have become a footstool for his feet. That's what we saw last week in Psalm 110, which this passage picks up on. He will make us make it to the end. 
And he will be there until the end. So he will get us there. So he doesn't just save us a bit, does he? If that's what he's doing. He's able to save those who draw near to, near to God through him completely, to the uttermost, to the very end, if you like. That idea of uttermost, it can mean completely, but it can also mean to the very end, all the way. But only if we draw near through him. It only works if he is our high priest, if we're not coming to God on our own, but through him. So he's ceaseless. He's our ceaseless high priest. But he's also stainless. Have a look at verses. Uh, have a look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. We're told here that it's fitting that we have a high priest like this. And we're given the four qualities, if you like, that are fitting for our great high priest. The first one is holy. Now, it's not the normal word that's used in the Bible for holy. It's a slightly different word. And it's more the idea of a specifically consecrated, set apart for a particular uh, role. Holy can hold the idea, but this is a, a sort of side word, if you like, that really holds the idea. Well, why is it fitting that he's set apart, that he's consecrated? Well, imagine if that wasn't true for Jesus. Imagine if he wasn't consecrated and set apart. We'd have an illegitimate high priest, wouldn't we? One who hadn't been set aside for the job. Now, there are certain jobs where it really matters that you are set aside to that particular position. So, for example, if you are a surgeon... Or if you think you're a surgeon, you really have to have the qualifications to do that, don't you? You can't just waltz into a hospital and start cutting people open. You will get in trouble. You have to be set apart. You have to be given that particular position. Same with a lawyer. If it turns out your lawyer, uh, in uh, if you have a legal case, if he's not actually properly trained, then the whole thing just goes out the window, doesn't it? It's not seen as legitimate. A policeman. For example, if they put you in jail and they're not a policeman, then that's not legitimate. That's not right, is it? But Christ was set apart for this job. He's a legitimate high priest. It won't be that in a few years' time he might be found out as a fake. And it turns out that he wasn't set aside for that. He's legitimate. He's been consecrated. He's been set apart. So we can have confidence in him. He's the real deal. He's the genuine article. So it's fitting that he is holy. And it's fitting as well that he's innocent. Now that word there, it's it's sort of like what a child would say in a way in English. It literally means not bad. That's what it means by innocent. Akakos, not bad. So it's sort of saying absent of evil. He's not got any evil or badness in him. Why is that fitting for Jesus as our high priest? Well, could you imagine if we had an evil high priest? You come close to it sometimes in scripture, high priests that do things really, really badly. But we see then that it's not fitting for the office. The office of high priest was supposed to represent God. So how could an evil priest represent God to the people? And of course, only Jesus could do it perfectly. He's the exact image of God. We saw that right at the beginning of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, you'll see on the back of your notice sheets. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. 
Really, there's only Jesus who can do that role. There's only Jesus that can be truly innocent and represent God to us. So it's fitting that he's innocent. It's also fitting that he's unstained. You see up there, that's our next word in verse 26. Unstained. And this is the idea of ritual purity. So it's saying that he's pure, that he's clean. Some translations have it that he's not defiled. Well, why is that fitting? Well, how could he serve as high priest if he was unclean? The Levite high priest had to go through all sorts of ceremonies just for one day to go into the temple to try and give some impression of them being clean. And they needed the high priest to be clean, didn't they? Because the idea that his sacrifice would make them clean. We know that, don't we, from doing washing up. I think everyone has done washing up. Nobody's always had a dishwasher, have they? You know that sort of situation where you've done a little bit of washing up and your water's got a bit mucky. And you put in these plates that are nearly clean, you put them in the water, give them a rinse, and they come out even dirtier than what you started with, yeah? You've all had that problem? I have. You need something clean to make something clean. You can't use something dirty to make something clean. It doesn't work. So Jesus has to be clean. He has to be unstained. If he's going to make us clean, he has to be clean. But how do you stop something clean becoming dirty? I mean, that's the problem with washing up, isn't it? The water gets dirty. Well, we find that in our next point. He's separated from sinners. That's the next thing in in verse 26. He's separated from sinners. It literally has the idea with the word of, of space being put between Jesus and sinners. Now, it could be figurative. That's how some people take it. You know, Jesus is a country mile away from us sinners in terms of quality. But it's more likely actual distance. He's been separated from sinners by his exaltation into heaven. That's what it's going to talk about next. And as such, to use a, a word I don't think exists, but he's uncontaminatable. Yeah? You get what I mean by that? He can't be contaminated. He's been moved, if you like. So he can't be made unclean. But it's not that he's inaccessible, because we'll see that actually he is accessible. We're able to go to him. But it's the idea that he's now incorruptible. We can't make him unclean. He's safe. He's not going to change. So why is that fitting? Well, again, imagine if our great high priest could be made unclean. Well, then he could no longer be our eternal high priest, could he? He'd be disqualified. Or he'd have to have days off while he sort of, you know, made himself clean again. Could you imagine if Jesus had to take days off as being a high priest? I can't answer your prayer today. I'm unclean. Oh, I can't intercede for you today. I'm not allowed in the sanctuary because I'm unclean. It just, you can't imagine it, can you? But this passage is saying that's not going to happen. He's incorruptible. He's separated from sinners. And of course he is in the sanctuary, isn't he? He's been exalted above the heavens. That's the last thing we see uh, in 26. He's exalted above the heavens. He's now at God's right hand. The position of power and authority, the biggest position of power and authority in the whole universe. There could not be a high priest in a higher position. And it also means that he's serving in the true temple. He's really where the action is. We'll see that a bit more uh, later on. 
But why is that fitting that he's there, exalted above the heavens at the right hand of God? Well, it means that he's able to be our high priest. He has access to God. And he can grant access to us through him into the throne room of heaven, into the holy of holies. He could not be in a closer position to God. And he is our high priest. He is with him in heaven. In exactly the right place. So it's not that we have a high priest who's sort of some distance from God and God might occasionally look at him. Actually, as Jesus stands before the Father for us, he stands right next to him in heaven. He's there as our unstained representative before God, right where he needs to be. How much better is that than the priest in the Old Testament who could just go one year, at one time a year, into a sort of copy of the temple? Jesus is there all the time, right next to God. So he's stainless. He's exactly what we need him to be. But even more than that, verse 27, he's self-sacrificial. Look at 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The point is here that Jesus is much better than those other high, other high priests, those other priests. Because he doesn't need to offer daily sacrifices. Now, this is a little bit complicated because this slightly merges two different ideas. So normally the high priest would make sacrifices for himself and then the people just once a year. As the, the day of atonement. But they did make sacrifices every day for all sorts of different things. But it sort of merges these ideas together. The implication really, I suppose, is this, that if they really wanted access to God, then they would have to repeat these yearly sacrifices daily. They'd have to make themselves clean. They'd have to go through all those elaborate ceremonies daily if they wanted to be clean, rather than just being clean one day a year. Why? Well, we'll see later in Hebrews that the sacrifices don't last It's not that they could do one a year and that would sort of carry on. Actually, they needed to be doing them continually to be clean because they didn't last. They were not effective in and of themselves. But Jesus' sacrifice was better. He offered himself. So as you get Hebrews, you sort of find out Jesus is all sorts of of different things from the Old Testament. He is priest, but he's also the sacrifice that the priest brings. He offered himself. But it wasn't to sort of atone for his own sins, like the high priest would have to do. It was to atone for the sins of others. Because he was spotless, he was stainless, as we've just been seeing. So it was offered for others, his people, all his people, once and for all. He had no need to offer himself again and again and again and again, because his sacrifice worked. And that's what we were sort of talking about a little bit with the Lord's Supper, weren't we? That's why we do the Lord's Supper rather than Mass in church. Mass is supposedly a repeat of that sacrifice of Christ again and again and again and again. But we don't need to do another sacrifice. Because Christ's sacrifice was sufficient once for all. And what we do is look back and remember that sacrifice that Jesus made. Because his sacrificial work is over, it's done. As Steve mentioned earlier, it's finished, complete. It needs no repeats. 
It's sort of the opposite of my kitchen door. Uh, we've got a sort of cubby. Do you have, you have a cubby hole under your uh, uh, your stairs? You know the one that there was sort of had an awkward door that sort of fits in. I I think I'm getting very good at fixing that door. Uh, very good at fixing it because I fixed it more than half a dozen times uh, since we've moved house uh, in, into there. Uh, it sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? I'm very good at fixing it. Well, if I was really any good at fixing it, I'd only have to do it once, wouldn't I? But I have to do it again and again and again. In the end, we've actually taken it off. Because <laughs> it just keeps, keeps coming off. But Jesus' sacrifice worked. He only needed to do it once because it really worked. He was really good at sacrifice. His sacrifice was right, was the best that it could be. So he doesn't need to do it again and again and again and again. And then finally we see that he's the son. Have a look at verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, that's uh, Psalm 110, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Verse 28 sort of sums up really what he's got to. The best that the law can do is appoint weak men. That's all it can do. But God's promise in Psalm 110 appoints the son of God as priest. And the priest forever. It's not going to change to somebody else. The perfect son is now our heavenly high priest. Which brings us to our second point. Just two points this morning. He's our heavenly high priest. Have a look at verses 1 to 6 of chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much, much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Don't just love it in the Bible when it says, Now this is the point of what I'm saying. You don't get it very often, do you? But we get it here in verse 1. This is the point of what I've been telling you. The point is that we do have a high priest. And more than that, it is this high priest that we've just been talking about. His name is Jesus Christ. And he is our high priest. So he's writing this to his readers. He's reminding them that this is the priest that they have. This isn't pie in the sky. This isn't best case scenario, sort of, you know, doing it in theory. This is for real. This is the priest that you have. The ceaseless, stainless, self-sacrificial son of God is your high priest, is our high priest. So what an awesomely privileged position we are in. This is the guy that is serving as our high priest. It's a bit like uh, the tale is told that Ronald Reagan used to like to drive the, uh, the chauffeur-driven limousines that he got as president occasionally. You know, he liked to take them for a bit of a spin and the driver would sit in the back and he'd go in the front and just take it down the road. And one time he was, this probably isn't true, but one time he was driving down, down his limousine 
and the driver was in the back sort of obscured you could just sort of see the shadow and a cop pulled him over for speeding sort of looks in the window and there's Ronald Reagan sat there and he said oh I'm going to need to ring my boss so he rings his captain up and says uh, I've just pulled over somebody really important for speeding I said oh is it Arnold Schwarzenegger no more important than that is it Michael Jackson no it's even more important than that he said well who is it then he said I don't know but he's got Ronald Reagan as his driver (laughs) but that's the sort of position we're in we have the son of God as our high priest that's his job for us he stands before God for us what a privileged position we are in what an encouragement to keep going I mean, what better arrangement could you have? What better person could you have standing before God, pleading for us? There isn't anyone higher. And on top of that, the place where he ministers is better. He's in the real holy place, the true temple in heaven. It's saying that the earthly temple, the earthly high priest, all that thing was a copy, a replica of what was going on, where the real action was in heaven. It's not saying that the earthly one is a fake. Don't hear it wrong. That's not the comparison fake and real. It's saying that that is a copy, a replica. It's a bit like this. Do you know what that is? Oh, no, actually, sorry, it's not. That's actually uh, something in, in France. That was the guy who designed it. They put up a statue of liberty there as well, if you like. I don't think it's called the Statue of Liberty there. When I looked into this, I was quite surprised. There's quite a few... Uh, around the world. I love the Spanish one has two arms, just to be a little bit different. Uh, <laughs> but there are all sorts of replicas of it all around the world. And it's not that they're fake, if you like, but they're there, they serve as a copy. When we went to Disney, uh, there was, uh, there's a, a big lake and there's sort of little countries all around the lake. You can go and visit Mexico and you can go visit England, which is hilarious if you, if you ever go there. And, you can see people sort of dressed up in all their clothes and stuff. And, you know, we went to Mexico and had some tacos. But in the end, it's just a copy. It's not the real thing. You couldn't really say that you'd been to Mexico if you went to the, the little place on the lake in, in Florida. It's a copy. It's a replica. It's, it's all right. The taco still tastes nice, if you like. But it's not the real thing, is it? But Jesus serves in the true tent, the true tabernacle, the true temple, heaven. He serves in the original holy place. And it says here basically that the whole priestly system, the temple, the sacrifices, the priests, they were all set up as a copy, a replica of what was going on in heaven. And it means that there are some similarities. They both have gifts to offer, the priests. The priests both make sacrifices. They serve in temples. But actually they're just copies. They're not the real thing. The real thing is what's happening in heaven, where Jesus is. So Jesus is the original high priest, if you like. The other ones are just copies. And it means if he was on earth, he wouldn't really be a high priest, because the copies, they had to be Levites. But he is our heavenly high priest. And he has a better ministry even than they do. Have a look at verse 6 again. But it is Christ, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry... That is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. He's saying actually the whole thing that goes along with Jesus is much better. So much better than the old one. And really the rest of Hebrews up until chapter 13 is going to be explaining just how much better it is. 
What does this mean for us this week? Well, we said at the beginning, doesn't it? Didn't we? What matters really is who is your high priest? Who do you have as your priest? And they faced the, the option, didn't they, in the, the readers of the book? Who are they going to have? Are they going to have Jesus or someone else? They could have Jesus or they could go back to the Jewish priests who were still around when Hebrews was written. Now, the Jewish priests probably seem more tangible, more real. But the author's point is this. No, Jesus is the more real one. They're the copies. If you have Jesus, you have the original. You have the real deal in Jesus. That's the readers. But we face the same choice in a way, don't we? Who will we have as our priest? We could have Jesus, or we could have somebody else, can't we? Now, sure, we could become Catholic. I don't think that's probably a danger for most of us this morning, and go, go back to having sort of priests with all the costumes and stuff like that. But I think probably more of us are in danger of just having something else standing before God for us, or trying to stand God, stand before God for us. Whatever we trust to act between us and God really is our priest. So it might be our good works. We think they will stand before God. Or it might be a person. It might be you think, oh, the pastor, he's basically the priest. But as we've seen in this passage, people let you down. People cannot do what Jesus does. I can't stand before God for you. Or some people just have nothing. They think they sort of try and act as their own priest. A bit like on all those TV shows where they say, oh, I won't have a lawyer. I'll represent myself in court. And it always goes badly, doesn't it? Well, sometimes it goes right, but you just think that's, that's never really going to happen, is it? But standing before God in our own strength, in our own righteousness, will fail. We can't do it. We can't represent ourselves because we're sinners. But what about those of us this morning who would say, yeah, well, we, do, we are trusting in Jesus. He is our high priest. Well, do we act like that? Do we think like that in our day-to-day life? Do we trust his intercession for us? Do we really believe that he is pleading before the Father for us? Or do we think that actually we might end up condemned? That we might not make it to the end? As though Jesus' prayers don't quite work standing before God. Do we trust in his sacrifice as our high priest? But if we don't believe in that, really, then we'll try and pay for it for ourselves, won't we? We'll think, oh, that bad thing happened to me to sort of pay for something that I've done wrong. Or um, if I can just be sad enough and sorry enough, if I can just cry, or if I could just make myself hurt enough, then maybe that will take away God's anger. But Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. We don't need to take the punishment ourselves or try and pay ourselves we need to trust in jesus sacrifice it is enough we can forget can't we that we do need a high priest that we do need a priest he's there but we forget he's there but we have jesus christ as our high priest we have the best scenario in the universe the best person stood there The ceaseless, stainless, self-sacrificial son is our heavenly high priest. He is the one that stands before the father for us. And we need to remember that when we're tempted to despair. When we're tempted to try and take the, the pain on ourselves, if you like. He has taken our guilt. He has taken our pain. He has taken the penalty. 
and given us access to the Father. What an amazing exchange. So let's use that access now that we have to the Father through Christ to ask for his help to remember that he is our high priest. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the ceaseless, stainless, self-sacrificial son. And Father, thank you that it's not just that he's there, but he's there for us. Father, help us to remember that in all different uh, things that happen to us in life. Father, help us to remember that we do need a priest. But it's not me, it's not uh, anybody else other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But thank you, Father, that we have the best high priest who stands before you pleading our case. And we thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen.